Welcome back to the Evidence-Based Rheumatology Podcast, where each week we critically analyze one paper in the medical literature. I'm your host, Mike Putman, and this is Episode 11, The Development and Validation of the H-Score, a score for the diagnosis of reactive hemophagocytic syndrome. Now, I know I promised that we'd be talking about the rheumageddon, but like most Armageddons, it has been yet again delayed. To be totally honest, the reason is entirely self-serving. I presented this paper today during our clinical vignettes, so if you're one of my listeners from Northwestern, feel free to skip this episode unless you want to hear the same information again. If not, I thought it was actually a very interesting paper, and I was excited to share it with all of our other listeners. So without further ado, let's get started. This was an interesting paper. It was published in the Journal of Arthritis and Rheumatology in 2014. The authors were Fardet et al., and like I said, it covered the reactive hemophagocytic syndrome, or as most of us really know it, hemophagocytic lymphohistiocytosis, or HLH. Not to make things confusing, but this also goes by macrophage activation syndrome in rheumatology. Before we go on further, let me just clear that up. For all intents and purposes, macrophage activation syndrome is just hemophagocytic lymphohistiocytosis that happens to be from a rheumatologic cause. Reports on the incidence vary widely, but something less than 20% and probably less than 10% of HLH actually comes from autoimmune etiology, so most of the published information is about HLH. For that reason, I'm going to be talking about HLH and MAS interchangeably going forward. For background, many people think of HLH as a hematologic disease, more of a malignancy. The reason is simple. Hematologists often treat it. It's often treated with chemotherapy, and it has a relatively poor prognosis. In reality, HLH is more of an autoimmune or autoinflammatory condition. It occurs when macrophages become overactivated, NK cells and cytotoxic T lymphocytes fail to do their job in silencing the macrophages, and an overexpression of cytokines results in something like a cytokine storm. This results in the classic symptoms we think of, fever, hepatospinomegaly, pancytopenia, and widespread histiocyte tissue inflammation. Though this is a rheumatology podcast, you should always remember that HLH can be related to infection or malignancy, and in adults, it's much more often related to the latter two. HLH is typically diagnosed by the HLH 2004 criteria. These are the ones that you've probably learned at some point in your training. They include fever, splenomegaly, cytopenias from any of the major three cell lines, hypertriglyceridemia and or hypofibrinogenemia, hemophagocytosis in bone marrow or spleen or lymph nodes, no evidence of malignancy, low or absent NK cell activity, a ferritin greater than 500, or soluble IL-2 receptor. I'm sure any rheumatologist listening to this podcast has heard those criteria before. What you probably don't know is that those came from a pediatric cohort. That's right. The criteria by which we diagnose HLH in adult patients was designed and implemented in children. There's a couple problems with this. For one, these features are terribly nonspecific. Fevers occur in a number of conditions, the vast majority of which are not HLH. Cytopenias, similarly. Hemophagocytosis, which most people think of as the sine qua non of hemophagocytic lymphohistiocytosis, possibly because it's in the name, is actually seen in most other conditions much more commonly. So for instance, in one paper evaluating hemophagocytosis in sepsis, they found that in sepsis, with thrombocytopenia, 64% of patients had hemophagocytosis. 
there is a lot of sepsis, and HLH's incidence is around 1 in 800,000. So, when you do the math, most hemophagocytosis has nothing to do with HLH. What about the ferritin? I'm sure any rheumatology fellow out there can tell you that they've been consulted at some point for hyperferritinemia. Unfortunately, that is also terribly nonspecific. There's a great paper in Blood in 2015. The title is, Hyperferritinemia Does Not Predict HLH. Straight to the point. In this paper, they actually didn't even evaluate values between 1,000 and 10,000 because prior studies had showed that less than 1% of those patients had HLH. In this paper, they went all the way up to 50,000 and checked to see how many of those patients did. Only 17% of patients with the ferritin over 50,000 had HLH. Liver disease, kidney disease, malignancy, infections, and even other rheumatologic diseases were all more prevalent. In addition to these nonspecific biomarkers, the markers that may be a little bit more specific, such as the soluble IL-2 receptor, the NK cell activity, are all sendouts. And then the bone marrow biopsy, where you find the hemophagocytosis typically, is pretty invasive. The most important issue is that our only validated criteria was developed in children. For all of these reasons, the authors of this paper set out to try to develop a scoring system to give clinicians the likelihood that a patient they're assessing has HLH. Let's talk about the methods. This study was carried out at three university hospitals in France from 2006 to 2011. This study was a retrospective cohort study that included all patients who had a bone marrow biopsy done for the purpose of diagnosing HLH. They also included any patient who was ultimately diagnosed with HLH, and then they kind of cleaned up their list to make sure they had the right numbers of each. They then retrospectively reviewed the medical records of all of the identified patients. Once identified, three clinicians who were experts in the care of HLH reviewed each case. They broke the patients into three different categories. Patients who were likely to have HLH or positive cases, cases who they weren't sure or undetermined cases, and cases where they thought it was unlikely or negative cases. Reviewers were blinded to each other's assessments, and at the end, they all came together to try to find consensus. A fourth reviewer joined them to break up any disputes. The next important thing to understand about this study is that it used 10 explanatory variables that they gleaned from a recent Delphi consensus. In short, because this is an entire paper in and of itself, they surveyed 63 international experts in hemophagocytic syndrome between October of 2012 and December of 2012. 24 ultimately participated, and they wound up identifying 10 criteria that they felt were worth including in this study. Seven of these criteria, the Delphi consensus agreed, were absolutely required or important to diagnose HLH. Those included hemophagocytosis, documented by bone marrow aspiration, fever, cytopenias, organomegaly, predisposing underlying diseases, high levels of LDH, and high levels of ferritin. A negative consensus was reached for 13 more, and then no consensus was reached for four criteria. These included high transaminase levels, high triglycerides, low fibrinogen, and low glycosylated ferritin. In our current paper, the authors included the ones that were positive and these ones that they couldn't agree upon. The glycosylated ferritin was omitted because, to be honest, no one's able to run that test. With these 10 variables in mind, and with the cases that the reviewers had assessed, they then went on to do some bivariate analysis to make sure that they were all significant. All of the variables wound up being significant, so then they put them into a multivariable logistic regression to see 
the relative impact of each variable. They then constructed a scoring system that weighted each variable based upon those relative impacts. The authors identified 314 patients. Two were excluded because of insufficient data for classification. Consensus was achieved in 57% of the cases as to where they should go. Minor discordances were occurred in 31% and major discordances in 12%. Minor would be where one author said that the patient probably had HLH and the other one said that it was undetermined. A major discordance would be where one author said the patient had HLH and another one said that they didn't. Agreement after the fourth expert was reached in 304 of the 312 cases, 29 wound up being excluded, so 238 patients were ultimately included in this study. It's worth commenting briefly on the demographics of these patients. It should be noted that there was a high rate of malignancy. Patients in the negative or no HLH group, about 27% had some malignancy. In the positive group, 57%. Lots of cancer. There was not that much lupus or Stills disease, 2% and 1% respectively. So we should note that the study was mainly done on patients with HLH from non-rheumatologic cause. When they assessed the variables, they found that all of them were significant in a bivariate analysis, but in their logistic regression, the LDH washed out, and ultimately the LDH was not included. They wound up including the following variables, known underlying immunosuppression, temperature, organomegaly, cytopenia, ferritin, triglycerides, fibrinogenemia, transaminase levels, and hemophagocytosis on bone marrow aspirate. From this, they constructed the weights that I talked about previously. The lowest weighted number was the known underlying immunosuppression. That was worth two points on their scale. The highest weight was a very high level of triglycerides, which was worth 64 points. Variables were dichotomized and grouped, and then to assess a patient, you would just say whether they had one of them, add them all together, and you would get what the authors called the H-score. The H-score ultimately ranged from 90 to 250. The best sensitivity and specificity was achieved at a score of 169, so this was set and evaluated for the ROC curve. For those who aren't familiar with ROC curves, essentially a score of 50 is a flip of a dice, and a score of 1 is a perfect test, where all patients who have it have the disease, and all who don't, don't have the disease. So you can imagine that anything close to 1 is good, anything close to 50 is essentially worthless. In this study, the area under the curve was 0.97, which is pretty good. It had 93% sensitivity and 86% specificity. Again, that is pretty good. This gets complicated, but they did an internal validation cohort where they took 10% of the total sample and they didn't include them in the part where they derived the score, and then they used the score to analyze these patients. The idea was that this is kind of an internal validity check, and the authors concluded that it was successful. I'm not terribly surprised, to be totally honest. They took some patients, they validated a score, and then they used the same patients. You would kind of expect that to work. So that's really about it. They developed the score for clinicians to use to assess for HLH. There are a number of important strengths that I really have to commend the authors for. This is the first actual criteria based on an adult cohort. Everything else we know about HLH is in children. They used relatively broad inclusion criteria and a large sample size. 312 cases of HLH is quite a lot. The score they developed is remarkably user-friendly. It doesn't require send-out labs. A soluble IL-2 receptor and the NK activity aren't included, nor does it necessarily require the bone marrow biopsy. Bone marrow biopsy is helpful, but when you use the score, you can actually put it in as unknown, or you can say no and then click it to yes and see how much it would actually change the percentage likelihood, which I like quite a lot. 
at least in their internal assessment, had had excellent sensitivity and specificity, and they did actually run an internal validation cohort. The weaknesses, unfortunately, were manifest. The main weakness of this study, and the one that you just can't forget when you're doing anything like this, is the gold standard. There's just no gold standard of HLH. What the authors wound up doing was having three experts assess each case and decide if they thought it was HLH. Couple problems with this. For one, there were three experts, so if one of them was biased towards one lab value or another, that would have given that variable a gross overrepresentation in the final score. Furthermore, these authors were certainly keen in on some of these variables. Because there's no true gold standard, it's possible that all that was done here was assess the bias of three authors who reviewed a number of cases of HLH. Even if the authors did an excellent job and had no bias whatsoever, they were hamstrung from the beginning because the entire study was based on this Delphi consensus. Again, this was not done by looking at which variables accurately predicted true cases of HLH. This was based on a Delphi consensus of 23 experts around the world who just said which variables they thought were important. Unfortunately, not all those variables even came out through this study. The LDH, for instance, which was noted to be absolutely essential for a diagnosis of HLH, wound up washing out in the regression analysis because it was likely predicted by another variable. Another issue is that only three patients here had autoimmune disease, so it's hard to apply this to our patients. And we don't know the positive predictive value or the negative predictive value of this. So they gave a sensitivity and specificity, which is fair, but the sensitivity and specificity are characteristics of the test themselves. So a test that has 90% specificity will always have a 90% specificity. But the question that we ask clinically is if I use this test and it's positive, what is the likelihood that my patient actually has that disease? For a test that has 90% specificity, if you're testing a population where there's a relatively high prevalence of the disease, it's going to perform pretty well and you'll get a high, what we call positive predictive value. Essentially, is likely to correctly identify patients who have the disease. If, however, even using a test that has 90% specificity in a population with a low prevalence of disease, the number of false positives is going to outweigh the number of true positives, and what you'll get is a very poor positive predictive value, meaning that in a population with a low likelihood of HLH to begin with, which unfortunately is basically the population that we're testing, even a high specificity doesn't result in a high post-test probability of your patient actually having HLH. This was also retrospective. It relied on ICD codes, and we all know how reliable those are. And it was not prospectively validated. They used an internal validation cohort. That would be like weighing yourself with an inaccurate scale and then testing to see if the scale was accurate by stepping on it again. Doesn't quite work in my opinion. All that being said, I think this is a very useful paper. The nice part is that they published the score and they put it online in a handy calculator. You can go to the website, but to be honest, the easiest way to get it is just to type the word H-score into Google. It comes up as the first hit. It helpfully gives you drop-down boxes where you can say which of the categories your patient falls into based on the known variables. You hit calculate and it gives you a score from 90 to 250, and it gives you a percent likelihood chance of your patient having HLH. I think it's pretty useful. I don't hang my hat on it because ultimately there's a lot of flaws in this paper, but it's the best attempt to date to evaluate for HLH in an adult cohort. That's all for this week. Next week, I promise once and for all, 
we'll talk about the Rumageddon. Thanks so much for tuning in. Look forward to talking to you again soon.